Last week, we talked about the issue of devoted things. What we mean by devoted things are those things in our lives that shouldn't be there because they belong to God. Either they belong to God because they are rightfully devoted for destruction, they're unholy in and of themselves, or they belong to God because they've been promised to God and we're keeping them from Him. And we talked about when we have devoted things in our lives, it makes us liable for destruction, meaning God's hand of protection is removed from us. We've quenched the Holy Spirit. God is not journeying with us through life in the same sort of way. But the question is, what if you went home last week? And you honestly searched your heart and you looked for devoted things. And you tried to make right whatever it is that's in your life that shouldn't be there. And you responded to how God led and you obeyed and you confessed. What is God's response to you? Or more generally, when we steal from God, when we lie to God, when we hold on to things that are unholy in our life, when we dishonor God with our body, with our mouths, with our actions, what is God's response when we finally take that sin seriously? When we finally confess to the Lord, how does He respond to His people when we get serious about the junk in our lives? Well, that's what we want to talk about this morning. So please take a Bible and turn to Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8, if you're using one of the church Bibles, it's page 174. Joshua chapter 8. While you're turning to Joshua chapter 8, let me catch you up on where we are in the book of Joshua. We're going through this book uh, this year as a church. And we've been following the story about how God has promised the children of Israel a certain piece of land. And because that land is so important to the children of Israel, uh, sometimes we use a map to kind of show this land so you can have a visual just so we can understand what we're talking about. This is a real piece of land. And this is a real piece of land in the Middle East. And it exists between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. Now we're talking about a promise that God made a long time ago and things that God did a long time ago in connection to this land. But what we're really talking about is what God is doing in our lives today and how his character, as he showed it in his faithfulness to Israel, is the same character that he's revealing to us in his interactions with us. So while we're not talking about this piece of land in our lives today, it is helpful as we're keeping track of the story to be reminded there's a piece of land called the promised land and that God is taking the descendants of Abraham, the children of Israel, into this land. What we've seen so far in the book of Joshua is they began on the east side of the Jordan River and that God led them miraculously across the Jordan River into this land. The first place they went is the city of Jericho. And the city of Jericho was the most important fortified city as you came into the land. The walls were incredibly high. No way for the children of Israel to be able to fight that kind of battle. God fought it for them. 
And at Jericho, there was this miraculous movement of God. The walls fell in. The people of Israel were, <clears throat> were wildly successful in conquering Jericho. However, God said, Jericho's the first city in the land. Because of the wickedness and the idolatry of the city of Jericho and because I'm going to be the one who does all the fighting, says God, <clears throat> all the plunder of Jericho belongs to me. That which is unholy must be destroyed. That which is good should be put into my treasury. But the children of Israel were unfaithful. They stole from God. They lied to God. And so the next place they went in Joshua 7 is the little outpost of Ai. You see it on the map there. The little outpost of Ai, and they thought this is going to be no problem. We only need about 3,000 men to conquer this little outpost. However, because the Lord was not with them, because they were holding on to devoted things, they were soundly defeated by the people of Ai. The children of Israel are like, What's happened? Joshua's like, Lord, you failed us. Lord, you promised to be with us. Lord, you promised us success. And God said, hold on a minute. I'm not to blame here. You have stolen from me. You have sinned against me. And I will not be with you unless you remove the things devoted to destruction. And so Israel, to their credit, they confess. They do what God asked them to do and they make it right. And the question is, how does God now respond in the face of Israel's sin after they have become serious about the sin in their life? Because his response to them is the same as his response to us when we deal seriously with the sin that's in our life. Well, we pick up the story in Joshua chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai. He chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You are to set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you be on alert. I and all those with me will advance on the city. And when the men come out against us as they did before, we will flee from them. They will pursue us until we have lured them away from the city. For they will say they are running away from us as they did before. So when we flee from them, you are to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. When you have taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded. See to it, you have my orders. Now the rest of the chapter describes how Israel obeys the orders. Now the orders come directly from God. The way the narrator has told the story, he's put the the description of what happens in Joshua's mouth. But Joshua makes very clear the Lord is the one who decided on this plan. The Lord is the one who's in all of the details. We are going to obey the Lord in Joshua chapter 8. And so they do this very thing. They take a smaller portion of their army. They set it between Ai and Bethel. And they're supposed to wait there in ambush. 
Joshua then takes the rest of the army and they walk in front of Ai in such a way that the men of Ai see them. The men of Ai go, okay, hey, we've already beaten these guys once. Let's go get them. They go out to get them. And when they do, the people waiting in ambush behind Ai rise up, set the, set the outpost of Ai on fire. And then uh, their enemies are caught between two of the Israelite armies and they are successful in defeating them. Now, those are the details of what happens from a military point of view. And that makes for a very interesting story. But what's far more important is the attitude displayed by God in this chapter in response to Israel's sin. So in Joshua 7, they've been unfaithful. In Joshua 8, what's important for us is to see how God responds. And there are five characteristics of God's response to the children of Israel in the face of their sin and their willingness to deal with their sin. Let's look at them together. The first one, verse number one. Then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. What does that sound like? Joshua 1, the benediction, we say it every week. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Here God is reaffirming for the people of Israel his relationship to them. And the first characteristic we see of God in response to Israel dealing with their sin is forgiveness. While Israel was stealing from God, there was a rift in the relationship. There was a separation. God was saying, I will not go with you. My hand of blessing will not be upon you. You are quenching the Holy Spirit. And there was a problem in the relationship. But the moment that Israel deals with the problem in their relationship, the response of God is total and complete forgiveness. The relationship is just as it was at the beginning of Joshua. When God said, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. I'm going to take care of you. That's where we are in Joshua chapter 8. The sin of Joshua 7 is washed away. It's forgotten. It's gone. It is remembered no more. God doesn't say at the beginning of Joshua 8, okay, let's see if you're going to be faithful this time. Let's see if you're going to be obedient. No, no. They dealt with their sin, it's gone. It's just simply not part of the equation anymore. Look at the rest of the verse. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai. That's almost the exact wording from Joshua chapter 6 with the city of Jericho. You see, God knows that the children of Israel going to Jericho with these high walls, this impregnable fortress... They're going to need not only reassurance that God is with them, they need God to tell them, I've already won the victory for you. And while the city of Ai is not nearly as imposing as the city of Jericho, you and I both know it can be just as frightening to be asked to go back to a place where we've experienced defeat. And the children of Israel are going to be frightened to go back to this place. Those old fears are going to kick back in. And so God does for them in Joshua 8 the exact thing he did in Joshua 6, which is to say, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. I've already won the battle for you. And what we see is the way that God is interacting with them is as if Joshua 7 hadn't even happened. 
The sin is gone. It's forgotten. They are completely and totally forgiven. They are the children of God and God is watching out for them. God is protecting them. God is taking care of them. God is fighting for them. Total and complete forgiveness. Because if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Second characteristic of how God demonstrates who he is in response to us taking our sin seriously is in verse 2. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Here God is being generous. We see the generosity of God in the face of Israel's sin. Now what I might have expected me to do is say, hey, the last time all the stuff belonged to me, you stole from me. This time I'm going to take some of it for myself again. This time we're going to see if you can obey. Let's start over and try again. Israel, you owe me stuff because you stole from me last time. Well, that's not what God does. God says it's all yours. And in the face of them stealing from God, God chooses to be generous. God chooses to say, take all of the plunder. Enjoy the gold. Enjoy the silver. Keep the livestock. Have it all. I mean, after all, God doesn't really want silver and gold. What's he going to do with it? I mean, gold is the stuff they paved the streets with in heaven. It's about as valuable to God as asphalt or chunks of concrete. He doesn't need it. And after all, he's giving to the children of Israel the land. They're going to get a land flowing with milk and honey. The point of Jericho was not like God's like, I need something for myself too. No, that's not the point. The point was God was saying, look, I need to be first in your heart. Therefore, when you first get to Jericho, give me the stuff that comes first. But the goal was always for God to give them far more than they could ever hope for or imagine. Because God is a generous God. And the stunning thing to me is his generosity shines even brighter in the face of the fact that they just stole from him. And God says, I've got so much I want to give you. You know, this is one of the really heartbreaking things about Achan. He steals from God at Jericho what God was going to freely give him at Ai. The plunder was coming. God's not trying to keep this stuff for himself. And the heartbreaking thing about Israel is all they have to do is wait just a little bit and it's coming. We do this too. We do this with premarital sex, pornography, or adultery. We try to steal from God something at Jericho that he wants to freely give us at Ai. We don't want to wait. See, God asks for the first from us, not because he somehow is a demanding, mean-spirited God. It's because he knows when it comes to things sexually that that will control us unless God has first place in our hearts. And so he simply asked for us, for those who are going to get married during your single years, what God is saying, he's not trying to say, I don't want you to be able to have any sort of meaning, fulfilling physical relationship with another people person. He's saying, I've got that coming for you. I'm going to be far more generous than you can possibly imagine. But Satan lies to us. 
He, le- he gets us to think that somehow God is stingy. He gets us to think instead of all of the fruit trees that we can eat from, he points out the one that we're not allowed to. But the point is God is not stingy. He's just trying to say, look, follow my rules for sexuality because otherwise they will consume and destroy you. But if I'm first in your, pl- in your heart, you can't even imagine what I have coming for you. But we want to steal from God at Jericho what he freely will give us at Ai. But in the face of it, when we deal with our sin, God's response is generosity. Take, have, enjoy. The third characteristic of how God responds when we confess our sins is in verse number six. They will pursue us until we have lured them away from the city, for they will say they are running away from us as they did before. Now remember, the whole plan is God's. The words are in Joshua's mouth, but God is the one who's done all of the planning. All the details are God's. And what we see in verse 6 is we have what I would call redemption. Forgiveness, generosity. The third characteristic of God is redemption. What I mean by that You know what's so interesting about God's plan? It incorporates their failure from Joshua chapter 7. The fact that they went up and attacked Ai without God's blessing, having stolen from God, God actually weaves that in to the plan. You see, the ambush wouldn't work if they hadn't already lost a previous battle. The fact that they had been up there once before and lost makes the people of Ai overconfident and God uses their overconfidence so that when Israel parades in front of them again, the men of Ai don't do what the people of Jericho did, which was to stay locked up in their city. They think, oh, we beat these guys once, we can beat them again. And they leave their city. And the amazing thing is God took their sin and used it to bless them. That's what the Bible calls redemption. That's the amazing thing about what God does is the moment you and I confess these devoted things, the moment we turn them over to God is the moment God begins to weave that sin into a beautiful tapestry of how he's going to bless us. I experienced this last week. I debated long and hard about sharing with you sort of personal stories about how I had held on to devoted things. Because again, we're up here to preach about Jesus. We're not up here to preach about ourselves. But it seemed important to show failures uh, in my life just as you might have failures in your own life. But the amazing thing was as many of you came up during the week or at other times and said, boy, I failed in the same area that you failed. And thanks for sharing your failure with me because it helped me to see it in my own life. And here I am thinking, well, this is awesome. God took my failures and is using them now as a blessing. And when I see him use my failures to help other people, all of a sudden those failures become part of the blessings of God. Now, hold on. It doesn't justify them. It doesn't make them okay. But man, what an amazing God that he takes our failures and then turns them into blessings. This may be the most amazing characteristic of God, that he can bring good out of evil. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Of course he can use good things for good, and of course he can use neutral things for good, but our God can use bad things for good. He can turn good out of evil. 
It doesn't justify the evil, but when you look at how God redeems the fact that they sinned against him in Joshua 7 to be part of the grander story in Joshua 8, you just sit back and say, what an amazing God. And his response is not to beat them up in Joshua 8. It's to simply take their failure and redeem it. And how many of us have been able to look back at sins and failure and junk in our life and see how God has turned it into something beautiful? Doesn't justify the sin, but man, how great is it that you can look back on it and go, but now it's been used for good. Fourth characteristic of who God is or how he responds when we get serious about our sin. Verse number 12. Joshua had taken about 5,000 men and sent them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. Remember, all the details of the plan come from God. God is the one who's decided that the ambush party is to be set between Bethel and Ai. Let's put our map back up here so we can again have a visual of what's going on. Now, we made the words bigger and the dots bigger so that you could see them. But Bethel and Ai are right next to each other. They're only about two miles apart. And God says, I want you to take that smaller force and I want you to put them in between Bethel and Ai so that Bethel is on their west and Ai is on their east. Now, the interesting thing about that is when that smaller group got to that spot, somewhere in that two-mile area, somewhere where they're camping they're going to come across a pile of stones. Not a pile of stones put there naturally, but a pile of stones put there by human effort. An altar, if you will. And they're going to know where that altar came from and why it's there because they're meditating on God's word day and night. And in the portion of God's word that they have, which are the first five books of the Bible, as they're meditating on it, they're going to come across a passage in Genesis chapter 12, which is going to describe where those rocks came from. And in Genesis 12, they're going to read, the Lord appeared to Abram, Abraham, and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Isn't that crazy? That altar that they're going to come across was built by their ancestor Abraham when God promised to give this land to his descendants. And the crazy thing is, Abraham, as far as we know, never went to Jericho. And Abraham never went across the Jordan. This is the first spot his descendants, 500 years later, the first spot his descendants are going to go to that Abraham himself had been there. And there's going to be an altar there reminding them of God's faithfulness. That's the fourth characteristic. God is faithful. And here they get this amazing blessing of being connected with Abraham and seeing his altar because they sinned. Now hold on, there's more to the story. When Abraham builds that altar in between Bethel and Ai, right where God places that ambush team, when he's done building that altar, 
he goes down into Egypt because there's a famine in the land. The problem is when he gets to Egypt, he sins. He lies to Pharaoh and tells Pharaoh that Sarah is just his wife, is just his sister and not also his wife. Pharaoh thinking, well, this is a beautiful woman. If it's just your sister, well, he welcomes her into the palace. As soon as he does, God begins to rain down destruction on Pharaoh and the officials of Egypt. Why? Well, Pharaoh has a devoted thing. He doesn't know it. Just like Joshua didn't know that there was devoted stuff. But devoted things cause problems whether you know they are there or not. And so Pharaoh is like, what in the world is going on? And so God somehow reveals to Pharaoh, it's Abraham. Pharaoh goes to Abraham and says, what have you done? And Abraham admits that he sinned. That he's lied to Pharaoh. (laughs) You know what Pharaoh's response is? He gives Abraham back Sarah. And then a whole bunch of plunder. He gives him gold and silver and livestock. And he says, be on your way. Now, guess where Abraham goes after his sin? Well, Genesis 13 tells us. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold from Pharaoh for lying to him. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Where does Abram go, Abraham go, when he's ready to make things right with God? To this exact spot between Bethel and Ai. Why does God put the ambush force in that spot? so he can remind them in the face of their sin that he is a faithful God. That Abraham's sin was forgiven and taken care of, that's why they're in the land. That their sin is not going to overwhelm God. That God's plan is bigger than our sin. And what's amazing to me is here's this group of Israelites standing in the same spot after their sin where God sent Abraham after his sin so that God could remind them 500 years later, I'm a faithful God. And all we have to do is confess our sin and God opens our... Listen, it's not that he starts being faithful when we confess. He's faithful the whole time. It's just we don't get to see it until we open our eyes and say, Lord, I'm sorry. And then he says, let me take you to a spot that's going to show you just how faithful I am. And neither Abraham's sin nor Joshua and the Israelites' sin are going to trump the faithfulness of God. Fifth and final characteristic of God's response when we confess our sin. And this one I don't have a catchy noun for. So you're going to have to kind of think of your own. We've had uh, so far forgiveness, generosity, redemption, faithfulness. I tried all week to come up with a catchy noun. I don't have one. The best word I can give you is the word more, which isn't really a noun. But more in the sense of, if you can think of a better one, write it down in your notes. But what I mean by more is look in verse 17. Now a man remained, not a, sorry, not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. 
They left the city open and went in pursuit of Israel. Now hold on a second. I thought this was the battle to take Ai. Right, I did too. Yep, yep, yep. It was. Ai is just a little small outpost. The reason why Ai and Bethel are so close to each other, Ai is the outpost, Bethel's the major city. Bethel's a big city like Jericho's a big city. And the amazing thing to me is, you would have thought, make your sin right with God and he'll go back and help you conquer the little outpost of Ai. Remember, it only takes 3,000 people to conquer the outpost of Ai. You would have thought, okay, you've made your sin right. God's now going to give you Ai. No, no, no. God doesn't just give them Ai. He gives them Bethel as well. Like this huge city, this Jericho-like city. Not only do they get the little outpost, they get so much more. And the amazing thing is, remember, God says, send the whole army. And at first you're thinking, what do you need the whole army for? Like, it's not like now all of these people are going to intimidate AI. AI is not intimidated at all. They're going to come out to fight. The whole army is not there for the battle. The whole army is there is because once you add the plunder from Bethel to the plunder from AI, there's too much for 3,000 people to carry on their own. God's point is, I've got so much more coming for you. You're going to have to have everybody here to carry it back. And this is the fifth characteristic of God in the face of our sin, is he does more than we could possibly hope for or expect. If we got Joshua up here right before Joshua chapter 8 and said, best case scenario, Joshua, what's going to happen when you get to AI? Well, we'll be victorious. Like, we won't be routed. Like, we'll remove this, we'll move this black mark from our record. We'll be able to say we have a victory. We'll be able to feel God's presence. What did he get? He got the outpost plus the big city far more than he could have ever asked for or imagined. That's the crazy thing about God. You would think that God would be a little bit more stingy here. But in the face of them dealing with their sin, he just rips open heaven and pours out his blessing. Now the Bible has a word for forgiveness, generosity, redemption, faithfulness, and more than you could ever ask for or hope for in the face of our sin. It's called grace. This is what grace is. And the amazing thing about last week is that last week the story of Joshua 7 and the devoted things really proclaimed the gospel truth that there is bad news that because of one man's sin, Adam, all of us have experienced death. But there's good news that because of one man, Jesus' righteousness and obedience, we all have experienced life. That's illustrated in Joshua 7, but if you keep reading in Romans chapter 5 in that same passage, you'll hear it say, the law was brought in so that trespass might increase. What does that mean? Well, why did God tell the children of Israel they couldn't take stuff from Jericho? He gave the law to show the character of their heart. There was some stuff in their heart. There was greed. There was idolatry. There was rebellion, at least in some of them. And so God gave them the law, give me the stuff from Jericho, so that their sin would come out in the open, so that they would quit hiding and covering up the greed and the idolatry that was there. But why? But where sin increased, 
grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why did God tell them not to take the plunder of Jericho? So he could show the sin that was really in their heart? so that he could be gracious to them. That's the goal. The goal was not condemnation. The goal was not punishment. The goal was Joshua 8, that God wanted to be extravagantly generous. God wanted to rip open heaven and pour out more than they could have asked for or hoped for. He couldn't do that while the sin was in their heart, so he gave them a law that said, give me the stuff from Jericho, so that he could be gracious. And that's the point, the amazing thing. We say to God, God, why do I have to honor you with my body? Why can't I have uh, sex with whoever I want to? Why can't I eat whatever I want? Why do I have to obey these rules? Why do I have to give money to you? Why do I have... Look, the rules are simply there to show us the character that's in our heart, that because we're human, because we're infected with the sin that's around us, there is greed, there is idolatry, there is a lying spirit that is within us. We can't know it until God says, knock it off. But we think when he says, knock it off, it's because he wants to beat us up. He doesn't. He wants to be gracious. And all he needs us to do, listen, all he needs us to do is simply acknowledge that the sin is there. The point is not about God getting plunder. The point is not about us turning our money over to God. The point is God is not a spoil sport trying to ruin our life. The point is God wants to be extravagantly gracious and he can only be gracious when the sin that's in our heart comes out so that we can deal with it so then he can forgive, so then he can be generous, so then he can redeem, so he can show himself to be faithful and so he can give us more than we could ever hope for or imagine. So what's the point? If you are still holding on to devoted things, what are you waiting for? Let them go. This is what's coming. Not condemnation, not punishment, not a vindictive God, a gracious, generous God who wants to, look, you're stealing from God stuff he wants to already give you plus more. You're trying to lie to God about things he's already wanting to give you plus more. You're dishonoring God with your body and he wants to give you honor for that plus more. The whole point is, look, if you're holding on to sin in your life, you're believing the lie, if I own up to this, I'm going to get punished. If I own up to this, people are going to reject me. If I own up to this, I'm going to be condemned. The truth of the matter is, when you and I own up to our sin, God responds with grace. That's who he is. That's what he does. That's his character. Look, the point about Joshua chapter 8, the same God that responded to Israel this way responds to us. Same way. Same forgiveness, same redemption, same generosity. How many of us can look back at sins in our life and say, unbelievable. God redeemed that. God forgave that. God used that to bring blessing into my life. My life worked out so much better because of that sin. So scandalous is this that where sin increases, 
grace just comes more and more that Paul actually has to spend the next chapter of Romans answering the question, why not go on sinning so you can get more grace? I mean, after all, if you're going to get Joshua 8 every time you sin in Joshua 7, get as many Joshua 7s as you want. And you know what? That's a genuine question. Paul's response is, no, 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 come on, it doesn't really work that way. No, it does work that way. That's why it's a real question. The response in Romans 6 is simply, Christians don't think about things that way. And be careful because sin has enslaving power. The answer is not, God won't be gracious. Because God will be gracious. Then no matter how much sin is in your life, no matter how much sin is in your past, the response is there will always be more grace than there is sin. In other words, crazily enough, because of God's grace, it will always be better than if you hadn't sinned in the first place. I said last week, this all doesn't sound fair. It absolutely is not fair, but it certainly is kind. It's overwhelmingly compassionate. We're made of dust. We sin. We stumble. We fall. But God's overwhelming power is that his grace is greater than our sin. If you have responded to the devoted things in your life, if you've done what God asked you to do, the God that I promise you're going to meet is the God of all grace. Let's pray together. Lord, it's starting to make more sense why we'll spend eternity singing your praises about your grace. Lord, nobody would ever have responded to sin this way. Lord, nobody would do what you do. Forgiveness? Just wiping it away, forgetting it? Remembering it no more? Generosity? Lord, how in the world does Abraham end up with more money after his sin than he had before? Redemption? God, that you use our wickedness for good? God, that you're faithful to, no matter what we do, that even if we're faithless, you're still faithful? Lord, who's like you? Lord, who can even understand your grace? Lord, who can even fathom the depths of your love that you would choose to treat us this way? Lord, you have every right to reject us. You have every right to be done with us. Lord, you have every right to curse us. But through Jesus, you've been gracious to us. So God, we just say thank you. Amen.